Superpunk Corporate Meltdown is a sequential podcast. We recommend you listen to it as such to be able to follow the timeline in order as you listen. We have provided detailed notes and music credits in the show notes, and we encourage you to head over there for things like sourcing, transcripts, or other information you may want to access. Thank you. Superpunk Corporate Meltdown is a podcast that examines workers' rights, institutional betrayal, and corporate retaliation. We trudge through the very public, tumultuous, and exhausting types of battles imposed on workers speaking out about workplace issues by employers. Up yours, woke moralists. I'm talking to you about how to be inclusive. This is somebody attempting to subdue what's going on. Through a case study, we reckon with the reality and impact superpunk corporate meltdowns have on workers and culture. Spoiler alert, it's not good. What does it say about your press releases that you're deleting them yourself? People are tired of being abused. We go deep, trying to understand the points of division co-opted by abrasive leadership and the implications of retaliation for workplaces in any industry. I'm Kate Bailey, a workplace consultant and investigator. And I'm Fanny Wandell, a hospitality workers advocate. And this is Superpunk Corporate Meltdown. We'll see who cancels who. This is episode three, part one. 3.1, yeah, it's annoying, but there's a point to it. This one's called Control. In our last episode, Kate paused the discussion with BrewDog after it was revealed that, while she was directly negotiating with the company on what to do with the historical cases of workplace abuse, a representative sought information from the platform using a personal right mechanism in GDPR and data law. Then... It all got turbulent. The chairman of the board writes a letter to Kate and Hand on Heart. In this letter, the chairman accuses Kate of blackmail and extortion, as well as accusing her of requesting a fee of £100,000. Within hours, Kate issues a rebuttal to the false claims of the chairman and is contacted by a journalist. BrewDog sent the letter out to every BrewDog employee and published it on their Equity for Punks shareholder forum. Kate provides the journalist access to the published rebuttals with evidence. However, a full three-quarter page print article goes out, repeating the chairman's false claims, resulting in a wave of abuse directed at Kate and the platform, including abuse about her autism and accusing her of using her femininity to make a name for herself. The article also included an anonymous source who was quoted as saying, Bailey has presented herself as a woke warrior, but seeking financial gain from this feels hypocritical. A production note, just to let you know what's been going on and how long it's been going on. But seriously, when it comes to all of the companies mentioned in this broadcast, we have reached out to all parties. For BrewDog and Wiser especially, we also provided a 35-page document detailing the factual claims in our podcast and describing discussion points. We invited them to respond to anything that they wanted to discuss from that document, as well as the questions that we asked. We gave them nearly seven days and indicated we were open any time to discuss any of this with them. Apart from one journalist whose reply we included in the broadcast, no party has responded to our invitation to reply. We have included this development about the DEO's letter and the Times article. Not because I want to bitch and whine about the impact this had on me and my business, but because it speaks to the character of the company and its leadership and the potential failure of corporate governance. There are other interesting components to the distribution of this article that we discuss in this episode, but the primary purpose of sharing this with you is to illustrate that this was an attack on the platform via me, the proxy, 
A quick revision. We begin talks with BrewDog, and a BrewDog representative then decides they want access to the platform data which consists of experiences shared by former workers in the hope of having the issues resolved legally or the myriad of methods that we have been prepared to pursue on their behalf. Then, Hand and Heart issue a statement pausing the discussions until the matter is resolved after trying to discuss it directly with the company to no avail. Two days after pausing the discussions and refusing to engage, BrewDog send me a letter saying that they will not be engaging Hand and Heart. The chairman, an actual grown man who bulldozes over the fact that we already halted the possibility of engagement, the result of a consensus among platform participants who contributed to the agenda that I took to BrewDog on their behalf, then distributes that letter not only to a media organization and to every employee within the company and on their shareholder platform. Now I can sit here and I can go through this letter and pick apart each lie, each lie compounding to bolster BrewDog's assertion that my conduct was, quote, tantamount to extortion. However, let's just go with the lie published by the Mail on Sunday. That being that Hand and Heart requested a fee of 100,000 Great British Pounds. Even this differs from the language in the chairman's letter. What did that sound like? Daddy Executive Officer writes, the BrewDog affected workers registration platform states that Hand and Heart is receiving 0.0 cents for its work. It adds that the platform has zero connection to our for-profit activities as a company. We find it hard to reconcile these statements with your proposal made to our people director that Hand and Heart be paid a ballpark fee of 100k. Indeed, this appears to be entirely contradictory. We are concerned that you have encouraged people onto the platform under the false impression that you have zero financial interest in the administration of the reconciliation program. That is what the DEO says. But let's look at the facts and what I actually communicated directly to BrewDog about this topic of payment. Number one, on March 9, BrewDog emailed me to thank me for my proposal. It was not a proposal. It was a presentation outlining the perspective and purpose of the platform. So therefore, on March 10, I respond by writing, I didn't really propose anything. I merely wanted to have a first contact discussion about what the company wants to do with cases. The result of that was that BrewDog want to resolve and move forward on these things as expressed in the meeting. In relation to the requested agenda, you basically would like me to propose how BrewDog could do a similar program for affected workers on the platform. I continue by responding to their request to set a date for the next meeting. Let's set a date and press forward in good faith. However, I will have to consult with platform participants about how they would like me to proceed and in turn come back to BrewDog with terms from these folks. I can have them to you by close of business Monday and we should have it in writing if those initial terms are agreeable. I think it would only make sense to proceed to the full proposal phase if BrewDog are able to meet those terms or be willing to negotiate. I hope you understand. I represent them and I do not think it would be anything surprising or derailing to the conversation. Just a process I need to honour as there was no discussion with them as to what next step with BrewDog would look like, as opposed to the alternative options. Then following this, I send a presentation and a letter outlining the concerns and requirements of participants, especially in light of the CEO and the company's admissions about retaliation, and they're suggesting that those coming forward are liars. In response, BrewDog asked a number of questions via email on March 24, and this one is specifically about that payment that I allegedly requested. They write, your presentation references a flat rate project fee. How much is this fee amount? On the morning of March 25th, I respond. The flat rate fee, 
as noted in the presentation, is to be confirmed with a few explainers and questions from my side. Today, after a quick review, I can provide ballparks, but formulating a full offer requires a week of work, because for a project like this, we need external vendors. We need to progress further and, quote, approve the project before I could assign these vendors and confirm budgets. I like to give very accurate numbers with no surprises, everything itemized and accounted for, and limited payments and issues around the service agreement. In line with this, any flat rate fee includes their fees. To ensure independence, Hand and Heart needs to be paying the vendors directly as a company. This would be a next step in negotiations naturally, but I am not able to finalize this figure without further commitments from BrewDog and the clarity that we agree on how the project will be run. In terms of what Hand and Heart is paid for, it will be the coordination, obviously, and the labor of myself and my team. I have attached a rate sheet for our general services so you have an idea of how we fit in with the market rates. But again, I need time to assess the platform cases and handle all of the above to be direct and explicit. And there you have it. Is that tantamount to extortion, anyone? Every detail and component is outlined. In the subsequent meeting that day, I reiterated that any ballpark would only be for external vendors to hand and heart and that it would require a week of work to speak to them. I expressed that if we could reach an agreement on a concept that worked, then hand and heart would be a coordinator and there would be a fee. They could also opt for another coordinator, agreeable to participants. And yet, they, with the help of an albeit mediocre media group notorious for a lack of integrity, insisted on using this as the basis for accusing me of conduct tantamount to extortion. Even when the material evidence destroyed their claims, they push and they bulldoze, because apparently being known and proven to be dishonest is less harmful to BrewDog than genuine accountability. Why did they do this? Because it's not about me. And it isn't about me. Though I do understand that I'm easy to target as a woke warrior. They did this because it was a proxy attack on the former workers that signed up on the BrewDog Affected Workers platform. More corporate retaliation. Using the same tactics they've been employing to date. Discredit me, deny the facts literally in their own emails, invade my personal privacy and intimidate me for speaking up on behalf of others, then control the narrative by using journalists who refuse to engage with my primary sources and material evidence, and then get all of that spat out across bot farms. They did it to me, and I know they did it to me because they were doing it to everyone else, and they're going to keep doing it. This is the super punk corporate meltdown classics, hit after hit. Now back to Charlotte Cook where we touch on this topic briefly and then turn to an expert who can help us understand the information apparatus of the internet and the media. Charlotte, you were the person who actually ended up being able to purchase the physical copy of the spread about me slash the platform slash daddy executive office's little lie-filled letter. And you were the one person that made me laugh that weekend because you said, well, at least they gave you the big picture. As a platform participant, what did you observe or experience when that article began to make the rounds? To me, it was just a continuation of a poor culture and a poor culture blaming other people for things that go wrong. I saw it as an attack on a woman. You were accused of extortion and I found that utterly reprehensible. And you were called a woke warrior. It was just buzzwords. It was in the Daily Mail and nobody even reads the Daily Mail apart from racist nanas. I just found it such an odd choice of media outlet and such an odd choice of wording. 
because yes, you're a feminist. You're not going to pretend not to be a feminist. I'm a feminist. Fanny's a feminist. Hopefully most of the people listening to this podcast are also feminists. And to try and call you a woke warrior, it was just a box ticking exercise, trying to diminish you, trying to make it seem like this is just another silly girl trying to get her word in. And I thought that was a really repulsive, disgusting response from them. Scared men not knowing how to deal with women who aren't scared of them and immediately jumping to the lowest common denominator, insult. Because it is an insult. They're not even engaging with you, they're just insulting you. And that's really not very becoming of a chairman of a board of a company that's supposedly valued at $2 billion. That's kind of what your uh, drunk Uncle Tony says down the pub on a Friday night when he's sick of the women at work. I think it was very disrespectful to the platform participants who I represented that the chairman published this letter two days after I had paused discussions to say that they were not going to engage anything that we were doing or representing. Doll, we paused it two days ago. These people made their stand. You've just gone and run with a megaphone of calling someone a woke warrior to disempower those people that said, no, we're stopping this discussion. We're not going to be engaged in this. And they did it anyway. And then they accuse us of abusing a position and other people's history to discredit them. This is the MO. They find a tiny lie that I requested £100,000 because that would underpin the accusation of blackmail and extortion that they wanted to put on me. The same way that they wanted to insert and insinuate very subtly and with a very small quote that the people coming forward with their stories of workplace abuse were just bad faith actors with a personal vendetta against the brand and the company. To provide such substantial evidence and to still have those sorts of accusations circulated just proved to me who is a white woman of substantial privilege in terms of being an established business owner and, you know, many other things, that the media is an apparatus of corporations that they can use as retaliation. In this situation, Brudog were pissed that I didn't stay quiet about their actions behind the scenes and allow them to bully the platform participants via me with underhanded tactics. Because They were attempting to violate the rights of platform participants behind the scenes while publicly playing the role of there's nothing wrong with the culture, they're all liars. So from my perspective, it was just really um, an egregious move. And again, it just highlighted the lack of corporate governance ethics that are being employed by this company. Fanny, I'm sure you have your own thoughts about this topic. For sure. This is something that you and I have discussed in the past, even with the previous podcast, which you produced. It's not entirely dissimilar from this, but I was engaged with a company founder from a different business for a short while. I felt I was operating in good faith when they then felt slighted by something I had said in public, the potential meeting we had been planning completely fell through. It was more than a few weeks later when things had really escalated that this person had an enormous amount of access to media and sort of shouted out to the masses, labeling myself and several others as sexism activists. So not only was that a misrepresentation of what we were actually doing, and I've talked a lot about how that's perhaps something I need to figure out how to reclaim, 
but uh but sexism like you're right there because sexism activists yeah and it it doesn't capture at all like you say the scope of the work that you were doing it's much more appropriate to call your workers rights advocate it just you know and that the use of that term feels political right the same way woke warrior feels political when it's used against people who are raising concerns yeah i mean definitely this was also something that was getting published within quite conservative media in Copenhagen, where I live. These sort of word choices feel like they are made in order to trigger a specific response from their readership. I would agree. And it's quite a difficult thing to prove, but anecdotally, it is a pattern, right? It is it is highlighting the way that access to a big media platform with a very specific type of audience, which just happens to generally be conservative. And I'm sure it happens on the other side as well. But that pattern and that ecosystem is a really strong resource for a company in turmoil, for a leader in turmoil to kind of have access to a megaphone. If certain words are used, if certain descriptors are used for the situation, they know that the audience is going to have a favorable reaction to the company or to, yeah, to, to that. It's kind of like the anti-woke culture thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Especially within that situation, I felt it was much more relevant to mention that I was an industry peer. True, because you'd done actually a lot of very public political work leading up to that. It was completely unrelated. So Completely. And that was also, I think, what made it so significant as well, that I was an active member in the industry doing this. And it wasn't the first time that I've publicly engaged with people in power. But I guess it's much easier to explain to an audience that you're a sexism activist wanting to bring down a company. So, <laughs> uh, and, and look, it's effective, right? Because the abuse that I got like over that weekend was just insane. And I know that you've had situations like that. So many people have had situations like that within the, the quote, activist circles. Um, so, yeah, it just goes to show that it does have a level of effectiveness. We'd now like to share an interview with Chris. We came across Chris last year as he was interacting on social media, sharing information and taking action as a consumer, following the stories pouring out in the craft beer industry. And Chris himself had always been an enthusiast of craft beer. What we eventually learned through the types of informations and insights that Chris was providing was that while he was definitely not industry and definitely not media, he had experience with technology and the internet. We had spoken to Chris before about Mikola, and as this Brewdog story began to gain momentum, we noticed Chris was publishing interesting observations about the company's use of media and social media. Hand and Heart decided to approach Chris about these observations and ask if he was willing to share what he had found through his curiosities with his skill set. Here is our interview. Chris. Can you tell us a bit about your interest in Brewdog? Yeah, so I used to be a Brewdog fan, loved their bars and enjoyed a lot of their beers over the years. When I started reading people's experiences of the company, that changed. But I guess because they're so familiar to me and so much has been written about them, I took an interest and I hope they'll do the right thing one day. Chris, one thing you raised when we were discussing Brewdog was some of the interest that you had taken in their marketing and your interest in marketing in general. Could you elaborate a little on that? So 
I'm interested in marketing and BrewDog have a knack for getting media coverage and I followed some of their marketing stunts over the years. The classic ones you hear about like the tanks and the taxidermy, whatever you think about them, follow a pattern. So BrewDog do something sensational and newsworthy enough that journalists will want to report it and then they let the media machine do its work and they get some free publicity out of it. Basically, the inference here is that by having these newsworthy stories and promoting them, they're avoiding the fees of, you know, marketing agencies, billboards, all that sort of stuff. Is That's the inference from what you've just said. Yes. And I think the CEO himself has said, I think, I think BrewDog have been celebrated in the past for their approach of not spending money on um, advertising, but going about it in a more guerrilla way. So Chris, what have you been noticing lately? So these days, I'm seeing less of that traditional BrewDog marketing, and maybe it's a sign of changing times, but they're still getting media coverage. They just have different approaches, and it's really interesting to me. Anything notable? Yeah. So on the 5th of May, 2022, an article was published in The Guardian about the CEO bringing a prosecution against a woman. This is the court case he'd been talking about for months, saying that he couldn't comment on it, comment on it because it's an ongoing legal matter and implying that he was suing someone from punks with purpose or some ex-staff. And it turns out that that's not the case. This woman he's suing had nothing to do with it, as far as I'm aware. And this article makes him look dishonest, you might say, and it's all over Twitter. But if you search Twitter for BrewDog, what came up? The CEO has made a surprise announcement the evening before the Guardian article and is giving away a lot of BrewDog shares to staff. And BrewDog are launching a profit share scheme. Great. And the day the article dropped, BrewDog is launching a new beer made out of sweets made by Jamie off of Made in Chelsea. Great. All of this is hitting the media at the same time as the Guardian article. So if you search for BrewDog or the CEO, you would see loads of hype about the shares and the profit share scheme. And the Guardian article was somewhat buried. Now, I'm not saying the shares and profit share aren't good. They're great. But the timing of the announcement was suspicious. And it feels like they're using this same old tactic to get media attention. But you have to wonder whether they're just trying to get free publicity like before with the tanks and the taxidermy or whether they're trying to bury bad publicity. Yeah, another thing they do is running things on social media to generate a lot of user engagement through tweets mentioning them, for example. So this floods search results for BrewDog, and it can have a similar effect to an announcement, but the content is generated by users. So they might run a competition, reply to this BrewDog tweet, and follow the CEO on Twitter, and you might win a trip to Vegas. Great. CEO gets an increase in followers, and nobody sees anything else about BrewDog on Twitter that day. Or post a picture of your favorite beer glass. People love engaging with that stuff, and it's a legitimate way to generate social media engagement. I'm not criticizing it as an approach. But when you do it at a time when bad things are being written about you, one has to wonder whether the timing is deliberate. So again, I'm not drawing any conclusions here, but I would encourage people to make up their own minds. 
Sometimes they don't just flood search results for BrewDog, but they target certain keywords, or so it appears. Some people call this Boris busing. Boris Johnson, the right-wing UK Prime Minister, was facing a lot of criticism a few years back, including for a lie from the Brexit campaign, which was written on the side of a bus, and for failures relating to the new London buses. And out of nowhere came a news story that he likes to paint model buses on old wine boxes, flooding search results for Boris bus. I mean, people even call it Boris busing when they see this kind of thing. And so the interesting thing about Boris busing is it's impossible to prove that that's why Boris suddenly decided to announce that he likes painting model buses. And that's why it's a useful tactic. But I would encourage people to look into things like this and think about who benefits and why now. So Imagine someone's bringing out a documentary about BrewDog, which is expected to be critical of them. As soon as it's announced, people will start talking about it on social media. And anyone searching for BrewDog documentary will see those discussions. If you wanted to suppress people finding this negative coverage, you could do some social washing or Boris busing. So you just put out a new story with similar keywords to try and swamp the results with your own content and control the narrative. So you have to make that story something which people will want to share. Ideally, something even your critics will want to share. So make it really outlandish. Like the CEO is making a documentary about sharks. And there's this really weird video, which seems like it was cobbled together from his own holiday footage with the CEO's face painted like a shark. That would be so bad, everyone would share it. And when you search for BrewDog documentary or the CEO's name and documentary, it's all over Twitter. Well, the CEO did that. And I'm not saying it was deliberate social washing or Boris busing because it's impossible to prove, but it did very much coincide with the BBC's announcement of their documentary on BrewDog. So make your own mind up. And I just like to add, I really want to see this documentary. So <laughs> if the CEO's listening, can we have a release date, please? We want the shark doc. You know, I mean, a big there was a big hurrah on social media about it. It, you know, the pe- the people mm-hmm. want what they were promised. And I think the people love sharks. People love sharks. I mean, that was a really, you know, I mean, is he weaponizing sharks? <laughs> is that where we're at? <laughs> people love sharks. Oh, I'm going to make a shark document. Anyway, we could go on for hours about what the motivations are. But I think in this discussion, it's very important for me to point out that, much, much like you have yourself, Chris, multiple times, that we're presenting patterns that are noticeable, that you can find online, that anyone can find. And we're representing those in this podcast because we find it interesting. We think that there's a substantial amount of online evidence to exist to at least create a question or create awareness around activity like this. And that is also because BrewDog are not the only company to do that. And These mechanisms that companies use to flood social media to do various different things, I don't have a problem with it. Like you said, it it really becomes problematic when it becomes a mechanism to drown out the voices of people who are trying to speak up or trying to have a different sort of conversation about the company. So I just want to be really clear about that. Now, I guess to now that I've made that caveat, Chris, are there other things that you think are notable in this conversation? Yeah. Another thing which BrewDog do on their corporate account is making big announcements, generating a lot of social media activity, and maybe generating news stories. And again, hard to prove, but 
it does look like there's a correlation with when something bad has been published about them. Um, and I feel like it's interesting because a lot of the announcements are not really that newsworthy in my view. Things like the Lost Forest, we all know about that. Um, the Lost Forest, which Brewdog had already announced multiple times and were expected to start planting trees soon, as soon as they got planning permission. And there was a big announcement. We've got planning permission as we expected to. And so there's no change to our plans. And we're still expecting to start planting the forest when we said we would. That was a big announcement. And it feels a bit felt a bit underwhelming to me. And another one was, uh, you know how during the pandemic to save the business, BrewDog halved the discount for BrewDog investors. And it was only ever a temporary change. So they halved it, but they were always going to put it back to 100%. Um, BrewDog made a big announcement to say, guess what? The temporary change that we made to your investor discount was temporary. We're returning it back to what it was before we halved it. <laughs> it just seems like this isn't news. This is like announcing, you know, breaking news today, the 25th of December is Christmas Day as planned and as trailed for the whole year. And it just seems like when something like this that's really not news comes up, and there are so many examples, it just seems like it could be timed to try and social wash to try and flood the narrative. Again, hard to prove, but you know. Well, it's not out of the realm of belief because companies do do it and admit to doing it. I mean, there are other companies that provide those services. So, I mean, it's a thing. I guess the main thing that you're pointing out here is the type of story versus the timing of the story, right? That's kind of the thing that we can take away and say, maybe that's something. Yeah. And it can be either or. I mean, these ones where they're announcing um, a scheduled return to um, the investor discount just seem like they've been pulled out of thin air. The one about the, the profit share and the CEO donating a lot of shares to staff, I mean, that is a big deal and it rightly generated a lot of publicity. But I do wonder about the timing of it. It was announced at very short notice, I believe. So while it is a big gesture, maybe it had been planned for a while. I do wonder if it was dropped at a particular time for a particular reason. The proof is in the pudding, I guess, because that article did generate a lot of press coverage and there was a lot of flooding and, and social media information flowing back and forth over these two different things. So to some extent, it was effective regardless of whether it was a conscious decision by the company or not. Something interesting to me as well from a technological perspective is when they're doing a similar tactic to the social media stuff through newspaper websites. So sometimes they do something fairly unremarkable and still generate a lot of press coverage. So recently, I think Punk IPA turned 17, no, 15 years old, and BrewDog brewed a stronger version to celebrate. Nothing wrong with that. But I noticed lots of tweets reading Brewdog to sell stronger punk IPA beer to celebrate its 15th anniversary, how to buy. And there was an image of punk IPA, always the same image. The tweet was always that exact text. And there was a link to an article with the same title as the tweet text, each time from different accounts, all local newspapers like the Basingstoke Gazette and the Hampshire Chronicle. Exact same tweet otherwise. Anyway, I looked on Google News and I saw 61 different local newspapers had published the same story, almost all of them at the exact same time. So when you look in the article, to be fair, it's made clear that BrewDog are paying them via affiliate links. 
And if you look into the publications, they're all owned by the same news company. So Brewdog presumably strike a deal with this company and the company pushes it out to all their local newspapers. And the people of Basingstoke find out that you can, as a resident of Basingstoke, obtain Brewdog beers from Brewdog's website. And so too do the people of Hampshire and so on. I think this is a lot less creative than some of their previous marketing stunts. I don't agree with all of their stunts, but undeniably they used to do something genuinely newsworthy and the journals lapped it up. This, on the other hand, is Brewdog making a deal with a news company to pump out the same article in 61 places, and it's money. It's not as creative. And there are some parallels with another weird thing I noticed involving 52 much shadier looking news sites than the Basingstoke Gazette, which are all seemingly connected. Their ownership is obscured by a company in Reykjavik, and it involves a Times article about you. I do remember this, and we spoke about it earlier in the podcast. Now, what did you find? So back in April, there was this article in the Times where Daddy Executive Officer from Brewdog lashed out at you for giving him an estimate of external fees for a reconciliation program after he asked you for an estimate of external fees for a reconciliation program. Scandalous stuff. This article was entitled Brewdog in Row with HR Advisor. So I was reading about Brewdog on Twitter, and I noticed there were a lot of results for this article, more than I would expect for something in the Times. Some of the links had the same headline, but were on different sites, just like the advertorials in the Basingstoke Gazette. So I googled it, and I saw there were loads of websites with an identical version, same headline, same article, same image. I did some searching, and I found over 80 different news websites publishing this exact article. Now, this is pretty weird. It looks like most of these websites don't write their own articles. They just republish stuff from elsewhere. It doesn't obviously mention that Brewdog are paying them to publish it, unlike the Basingstoke Gazette, but it's really interesting. So I got the idea that at least some of them might be part of an automated news farm where one article is published on dozens of websites with very little human involvement. A shady version, if you like, of the local news sites. But why would they do this? Well, A news farm could be there simply to attract clicks by using others' content for whatever reason, advertising, selling data, malware, whatever. Or it could be there to falsely amplify certain stories to make it look like they're more significant than they are. What if you wanted to inflate a news story, which had only been published in one or two places, to make it look like everyone is talking about it? You could pay a shady company to publish it on loads of different websites, all seemingly independent, to manipulate the search results. Such a deal would not leave any evidence. So of course, I'm not saying, and I can't say whether this is what happened. I'm just speculating. But even if these sites have no connection to anyone involved here, their effect can't be denied. They plastered Google and social media with this article which spoke negatively about you. And again, to reiterate, we're taking Chris's analysis of the data that he has found for what it is, which is it exists, this thing happened, This is a little bit weird. We're just pointing it out. Chris, were you able to find anything further out from a technological perspective or from any other perspective about what was going on? So I'd found over 80 different sites hosting this article. 
and I had a theory that there was some sort of automation involved, so I dug a bit deeper. I looked at the sites and I found that many of them run on WordPress. Nothing unusual, it's a popular platform. So I looked at the code and I found a lot of similarities which made it look like many of them had been made by the same person. One simple example is the About Us page. For many of these sites, 52 of them in fact, they had the exact same text on their About Us page, word for word the same, but with the name of the site changed in each case. So I figured these sites are all run by one company, but they're trying to look like they're not. They have names like Elon's Vision, Guns and Money, and Secrets of Rich Dads. All have a financial theme, but they have different logos, and there's no information about who owns them. So I checked the IP addresses, i.e., where the website name redirects to on the internet, and 34 of them have the same IP address. I checked the domain registration details, and all of them have used the same company in Iceland to obscure their ownership. I also noticed that 29 of them were registered on the same day, 13th of February 2020. What are the chances that these websites are unrelated? Pretty low, I think. My theory is that someone runs these websites as a news farm which republishes news either to get clicks, to amplify news, or both. Now again, I'm not pointing the finger at anyone, but it's pretty interesting and I'd love to know the truth. Chris, are you are you confirming here for me that I've been published on Elon's vision and Secrets of Rich Dads? That's correct. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Secrets of Rich Dads. I mean, it's a very specific demographic that they seem to be going for here. And Obviously, there's two scenarios wherein if it was that these websites were doing this as part of providing a service, right? So there's an exchange of money. Does it come from the publication? Does it come from the company? Those things, you know, like you said, we're just never going to know. Probably more likely than not in this case, it could be the publication. I guess the question is, why? Yeah, I wondered why they'd all chosen this story to publish. So do these sites search for certain keywords, maybe to do with finance or rich dads? Maybe. So I checked some finance and investing stories in the Times as to whether they were also republished and came up with nothing. Maybe they just republish anything mentioning Brewdog. They're a popular brand. They're always in the news. They get a lot of attention online. So if you're just going for clickbait, it might be a good strategy. And clearly, they're able to republish stories from the Times because they republished the one criticizing you. So I went through Times stories about BrewDog over the last year or so. I looked for stories which were negative about BrewDog in some way. There are many. And checked for copy-paste versions on Google, like with the article about you. So remember, the article which criticizes you had search results on 82 sites, at least 52 of which seemed to be operated by one company. Well, I looked at 17 other Times articles which were critical of BrewDog. Guess how many of them were mirrored all over the internet? The top hit was one article had three results, including the Times. So the Times and two other news outlets. Three of the articles had two results. So the Times and one other place. And the other 13 stories had only one result, the Times article, not mirrored anywhere else. So why is it that the article which criticized you has so many more results, over 80 results, than these 17 other articles which criticize BrewDog which mostly have one result. I can't say, but it's very interesting. My question from what you've just shared would be, and I'm a, I'm a Luddite, so I don't really know, but it, could it be something to do with keywords? Something in the articles which 
makes it worth syndicating to a particular audience for a certain reason. Absolutely, it could. Um, and that's what I tried to get to the bottom of by looking for keywords such as BrewDog, looking for articles on the same publication, the Times, and looking for tags or categories such as finance or investment articles published on the Times. Now, it's impossible to know what keywords this news farm was looking for if it was looking for keywords. So it's hard to prove why it published it. All we know is the story criticizing you had over 80 search results on seemingly different news publications. And the other articles on the Times about BrewDog had mostly one, sometimes two, in one case, three. So we can't really know what keywords they're targeting, but it would be interesting to see if anyone can come up with any examples of other articles about BrewDog which are syndicated as much as the one about you. Wiser story about them breaching Charlotte Cook's anonymity. There were dozens of articles regarding the 100,000 that BrewDog had raised with their beer for the Ukraine. Yeah, that's I'd forgotten about that, but that is another one. Yeah, mm. that was uh, late May, I believe. Mm-hmm. And But that one, I mean, that was positive about BrewDog, wasn't it? So I feel like that... I feel like that fits into one of the previous things I've described, which is, you know, legitimate marketing tactics, do something newsworthy like brewing a Ukraine beer and people will report on it or possibly um, report on it yourself or possibly incentivize sites to report on it. I'd be really interesting to see an article which was negative about BrewDog or their CEO, which has been plastered all over the Internet as much as the article about Kate or as much as articles about BrewDog releasing a new beer. I guess this leads me to really the speculation and conjecture part of the conversation because I have a theory. Well, no, I don't have a theory. I have a hypothesis. And this goes back to something that I would ask both of you to speak on because I actually didn't get that involved. But what I do know is Daddy executive officer, the chairman of the board, used to be on the board for Sky News. We know that, which means that there's a connection to Murdoch. What we also know is the majority of positive articles and news media that has gone out over about BrewDog over the last six to seven months has come from Murdoch-owned publications. Now, the woke warrior thing, right, that was really interesting to me. And that was the one thing that I just did a quick, you know, 10 to 15 Google search combinations just to see what was coming up. The one thing that I found interesting from that was that in 2018, Rupert Murdoch gave a speech foreboding, foreshadowing the coming tide of woke culture. That prompted me to look into, okay, so this is something that this individual has said, we understand from other networks that this individual does try and have some influence over the way stories are reported. And what I found really interesting was that when I went onto a bunch of different Murdoch owned publications was that they had tags and story categories for woke culture. And I couldn't find that on other publications or news sites. I I did my fair share of looking into Daddy Executive when he sort of started making his appearance back in March, I believe. What I found to be interesting was looking through one of his published books, which was called On Leadership. That's where he 
interviewed about 60 different business professionals, one of them being Rupert Murdoch. So it does seem that they have some sort of business relationship at the very least and a mutual respect for each other. But Rupert Murdoch would never try and help out a pal in business, would he? I don't think so. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Not Rupert. Not the original daddy executive. One thing that is interesting to me in this area is I've noticed a few articles which criticize Brudog's CEO have been deleted from the internet. One of them is back, two of them still gone. And there have been a lot of articles on the CEO of Brudog in the Times, and none of them have been deleted. Now, many of them are to an extent critical of him. But I found it interesting that the the article by The Times was the first of a kind, I think, kind of tell-all interview with a CEO who notoriously doesn't do that kind of thing. And it's interesting that that was published in The Times. I noticed that you had a Twitter thread about articles that were taken down by publications that had written, I guess, critical or questioning articles about Brewdog or the CEO. Could you elaborate a little on that? Yeah. So in following the BrewDog developments on social media, I notice when new articles are published and tend to read them as soon as I see them. So there was this article published in May in Good Beer Hunting, which was critical of the CEO. It was taken offline within hours of being published. And interestingly, the article, rather than giving an error page, They'd replaced it with a little note saying that they'd been threatened by lawyers representing the CEO and that they were taking legal advice in order to get it back online. And I think it took a few weeks, but by the end of the month, they'd republished it. So I find that interesting. Clearly, they felt safe to republish it. But there are other articles which have been taken offline. And I do have to wonder, many publications either might not have access to specialist lawyers to get advice on whether their article can be published, or they just might not care that much. So Good Beer Hunting is a beer publication, and I think they cared enough to hire some extra lawyers to check this article over and to get confirmation that, yes, you can publish this. It's not contempt of court. But I noticed a couple of other articles which have been taken offline and remain offline. So there's one in the drinks business, which was from the 6th of July, about Brewdog Boss slammed for saying unconfirmed autism diagnosis may be behind bullying. And that was offline within hours. And I put a link to it in my tweet thread. You can see for yourself that the page no longer exists. Another one, the next day, I think, in the Metro reporting on the same story. It was gone within hours and no notice, just gone. All of these articles make the CEO look bad. Now, I'm not saying that the CEO's lawyers threatened the Metro or the drinks business. I'm not saying they didn't. I can't know that. But Good Beer Hunting confirmed on their own website that the CEO's lawyers did threaten them. And they were ultimately unsuccessful because the article's back online. So it's great that Good Beer Hunting had the resources and motivation to fight lawyers with lawyers. But what about publications who don't have the resources or don't particularly have the motivation? Speaking of deletion, Fanny, while you've been producing this podcast, you came across something very interesting recently in relation to deletion. Can you tell us about that? 
So I've been tracing Quotegate a bit for this podcast, and I have been looking for the original wording of the press release about the complaint summary to Ofcom. And when looking back at the archives, I still haven't been able to find it. So basically, long story short, you go to look for a press release that was on initially on the BrewDog site, and now it's just not there. And then seemingly the archive links that you have tried to access have also been updated to reflect the missing or omitted words. Yeah. And I guess just so we're really clear on it, this implies that the quote was born out of the review done by the third party consultancy Wiser. Chris, any insights on this? Yeah, I've got a copy of the original press release. Um, but I do find it interesting that BrewDog, unlike the the Metro publishing a story which was critical of their CEO and maybe they sent a legal threat to get the Metro to unpublish that, another story when they publish something on their own website and, as Fanny points out, decided to amend it at some stage to change the wording and then more recently, as Fanny noticed, decided to delete it entirely. What does it say about your press releases that you're deleting them yourself? Well, that's very interesting because I found an archived version of it, which you can still view now on a site called the Internet Archive. So if you go to web.archive.org, you can search for any link on the internet and there may or may not be an archived copy of it there. But the nice thing you can do on this site is you can view copies from different dates and different times. So I looked up the BBC complaint, Ofcom complaint um, press release, and you can still see it. It is archived on the Internet Archive, and you can actually compare the changes. So the first version they published had a paragraph which reads, an independent report by workplace consultancy concluded last year that BrewDog was the target of the most extreme case we've seen of a small group of former employees on a mission to cause damage to a brand. BrewDog has some 5,000 ex-employees and current staff of 2,400, which is set to grow by up to an additional 800 employees by the end of 2022, following a string of new bar and hotel openings. That whole paragraph I've just read out was subsequently deleted from their own press release. The press release seems to have a typo or a mis-edit in it because it says, and I'll quote it verbatim, an independent report by Workplace Consultancy concluded last year that BrewDog was, and so on. So it seems like it's missing the name of the consultancy, which I think I've seen the wording by Workplace Consultancy and then no name. I think I've seen that in an article as well. So were there any other specific changes in the archive version that you have access to, Chris? Uh, no, it was just that paragraph was removed. And then the following paragraph had the word also in it, which was removed just to preserve the flow of the press release, as if it had never had that paragraph with the quote gate quote in it. And then, as Fanny says, since then, it's deleted. So you can visit it on BrewDog's site and it says page not found. We've covered a lot of ground when it comes to deletion. And I kind of think we're filtering down to a landing point, which is all of these things. If you go from the social washing on social media, the article which was published about me, the 
you know, decade of marketing stunts, various things like that. And then we get into the territory of critical articles being deleted, but also problematic pieces that the company is clearly aware are problematic being taken down. And as we've said many times, a lot of this is speculation, but I think regardless of whether this is all intentional, and I guess there's some implication of that, at least from my side, is that it is effective to a certain degree in terms of this quote unquote war that Brewdog seems to think that they're fighting against people who are speaking up against them, against criticism, against any kind of dissent. One thing I wanted to actually discuss regarding that very quickly, if you could just very quickly explain to us, Fanny, what has happened on the Brewdog forum in the last months in relation to this topic as well. So on the topic of dissent, which is a word frequently used within the shareholders forum, often when a new controversy arises, such as the quote or the breach of anonymity in the Wiser Review, I've observed moderators borderline censoring shareholders. This is done in multiple ways. Posts might be flagged and later removed. Politely phrased questions would be classed as spam, citing that they're repetitive, but they're repetitive because questions haven't actually been answered. Worst of all, I've observed shareholders be banned from the forum for up to a year, sometimes more. Again, this is just another example that of a sanitization campaign we can't prove. The ability to control a narrative as much as possible, or at least interject your agenda further into that narrative. Chris, do you have any insights or thoughts on these sorts of activities in general or any final takeaways from what we've discussed today? Yeah. What I would say is I've never seen another beer company engage in these kind of tactics to any level. I'd love to see examples because it really does fascinate me. I have seen right-wing political parties in government engage in these tactics, but I've never seen a beer company do it. And that's what is really interesting. Together with, you know, my history with Brewdog, the fact that they're a familiar brand to me, so whatever they're doing, good or bad, I'm kind of interested in it and I'm kind of hoping that things will go the right way eventually. But I'd love to see an example of a beer company engaging in these sorts of tactics or seeming to be engaging in these sorts of tactics. Again, unprovable. I agree. And again, I think you raise a really relevant point, which is that we don't see this in the beer industry as much, but where we do see it is in corporate culture. We do see it in politics and we do see it in conversations where there is a division to be made. There is an opportunity for someone to be the winner and for someone to be the loser. And that I think is the most relevant takeaway because you can kind of apply almost an algebra to these situations if you use the example of, okay, a beer company is doing it, a right-wing company is doing it, but maybe the reason politically or for image reasons is the same. Spot on. Murdoch Bot Farms. Boris Bussing. Who knew? The twists and turns. Just can't get enough. We are going to conclude this episode here. And the reason why is because we keep talking about the media. In fact, evidently, the media is kind of a big part of the Superpunk corporate meltdown machine. So do enjoy the next installments of Superpunk corporate meltdown.
like this music. It is a cover of the Divinal song Back to the Wall by Amunda, A-M-U-N-D-A. Find out more in the show notes where you'll also find all of the other credits. Thank you.